start with breaking news now. Taliban fighters have reached the Afghan capital, Kabul. As it stands this hour, Taliban fighters surround the capital, Kabul, and negotiations are underway to secure a transfer of power. American uniforms and American equipment are in full control of Kabul airport today. The men inside them, however, are not US citizens, but Taliban fighters celebrating victory over the force that swept them from power 20 years ago. Afghans are thronging to Kabul's airport, desperate to get on planes and leave the country at any cost. They're scaling the airport's walls this morning, rushing in. There's no screening, no security checks, just force of numbers. It's been more than six months since the Taliban took over Afghanistan, displacing hundreds of thousands of Afghans. The United Nations Refugee Agency predicted that by the end of last year, more than half a million people would flee Afghanistan. Some of those refugees settled in Ukraine and once again need to escape conflict. Since Russia invaded Ukraine, the U.N. says it's caused the fastest-growing refugee crisis since World War II. A consultant from the International Crisis Group told the New York Times that the war in Eastern Europe is, quote, potentially apocalyptic, end quote, for Afghanistan's growing famine and for its collapsing economy. 22-year-old Faisal Wazir fled from the Taliban last August. He says what his home country needs most is... Help. Help with resources, everything... Just like exactly with Ukraine, every country is helping Ukraine. I think all the countries should like help Afghanistan too. They've been gone silence on Afghanistan since what, what's happening in Ukraine. I think they should get back up and start talking about what's going to happen next in Afghanistan. After the break, we'll discuss how the war in Ukraine is complicating the humanitarian crisis in the country. We'll also talk about how the conflict is affecting refugees in the U.S. and elsewhere. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. A reminder to have your questions answered on future topics, or just to let us know what you think, tweet us at 1A. Support for NPR and the following message come from BetterHelp, offering online counseling. BetterHelp therapist Hesu Joe knows that lockdown has been hard on us as humans. We as people are hardwired to connect with others, which is why this whole time is so difficult. The connection that happens between people can be very powerful and how healing it can be to have a healthy relationship with someone. To get matched with a counselor within 48 hours and save 10%, go to BetterHelp.com slash 1A. Support for NPR and the following message come from BetterHelp, offering online counseling. BetterHelp therapist Hesu Joe knows that lockdown has been hard on us as humans. We as people are hardwired to connect with others, which is why this whole time is so difficult. The connection that happens between people can be very powerful and how healing it can be to have a healthy relationship with someone. To get matched with a counselor within 48 hours and save 10%, go to BetterHelp.com slash 1A. Over this last year and a half, the world's been through a lot. So on this season of the StoryCorps podcast, we'll hear stories reminding us that even when times are hard, we can still begin again. Listen to our new season wherever you get your podcasts. We're discussing the humanitarian crisis in Afghanistan. Joining us now is David Miliband. He's been at the forefront of calling out the West and the U.S. for inflicting, quote, catastrophic damage on Afghanistan. Miliband served as the United Kingdom's foreign secretary, and he's now the chief executive and president of the International Rescue Committee. David, thanks for being with us. 
Of course, good to be with you. So when the Taliban took over, most humanitarian aid workers and agencies left. What kind of aid is on the ground there now? Well, the International Rescue Committee uh, has about 3,000 staff on the ground across nine provinces. We're actually hiring 1,000 more people to work in schools because March is the time when the schools reopen. Uh, The truth is that humanitarian aid is needed more than ever in Afghanistan for a very simple reason. It's not because the war is still going on. The war is over. But after the war finished in August, I'm afraid that the military withdrawal was followed by political and above all economic withdrawal. Uh, International aid accounted for about 75% of the government budget, 40% of total official economic spending. And so when that was stopped overnight, it plunged the already poor country into the catastrophic condition that you described. So humanitarian aid is needed more than ever. That's why there's a very large UN appeal. But our argument all along has been that Afghanistan, just like any other country, can't simply survive on aid programs alone. It needs a functioning economy. And that's what we're working on with the U.S. authorities and others to try and get moving. There are multiple reports about possible mass starvation. The UN reported that 95% of Afghans do not have enough food to eat. What could happen right now to alleviate some of the problems causing this? Well, essentially, money needs to start flowing. The Taliban individuals at the top of the government, about 140 of them, are the subject of US and international sanctions. But that doesn't mean that the whole country needs to be the subject of sanctions. Fortunately, the World Bank has finally agreed that a billion dollars that it's got sitting in its Afghan reconstruction trust fund can be spent on the salaries of teachers, doctors, nurses, water engineers, because some of them haven't been paid since last August, even some of them since a year ago in April. Um, It's also absolutely essential that the central bank starts functioning so that the economy is able to function. You can't have an economy without a central bank, and that's not working at the moment. So the consequence is precisely the high levels of what in diplomatic parlance is called food insecurity, but essentially means not enough food uh, on the table. The World Food Programme says it's got to feed up to 22 million people in Afghanistan, which is half the population. It's almost incredible to say it. So you will hear some really stark stories from anyone who's there. Our own staff report that their friends and relatives uh, are short of food, that they are spacing out meals, um, that they're unable to really know where the next meal is coming from, not because there's no food in the country, but because there isn't the spending power to to, to work. And, and it's just to give you a very simple way of explaining it. If you get paid as a staff member of an NGO, you can't get your money out of the bank. It has to be done through a local money broker because the banking system isn't working. And that's why you've got such an economic collapse. David, you, you mentioned the importance of restructuring, essentially, Afghanistan's economy. What would that look like practically? Yes, essentially, Afghanistan has to go from being a war economy and Afghanistan has to build its own economy. Now, the truth is that Afghanistan was a very poor country before 2001, and it's now, um, in in some parts of the country, a a starving country. What an economic plan would um, look like would obviously be to focus on some of the things that where Afghanistan has some potential. Now, what it's got on its side is there isn't a war going on anymore because the biggest drain on the economy over the last 20 years has obviously been the war. It's it's brought in money for military contracting, but it's sucked life out of the economy. And uh, America and the West has made its decision militarily 
But I think given the reputational, never mind moral, commitments that it's made, it's very important that it doesn't have the rug pulled up from under Afghanistan economically. You've been pushing the Biden administration and the World Bank to to release cash, as you said, to help Afghanistan's economic recovery. And we know there has been a strategy to avoid giving more money and aid out of fears that it would empower the Taliban. How do you understand that tension? And and what do you have to say about it? Well, well here's the incredible irony, Jen. In the name of avoiding giving money to the Taliban, we've ended up with a ballooning humanitarian aid bill, which we have to pay. So because there's no functioning economy, the humanitarian aid bill this year is $4 billion. The United Nations says that unless the economy is functioning, next year the humanitarian aid bill will be $10 billion. So the issue is not about American money subsidizing the Afghan economy. It's allowing Afghans to spend their own money. And you've covered on your program the issue of the $7 billion dollars of frozen Afghan assets that are sitting in the New York Federal Reserve, another two and a half, three billion sitting around Europe and elsewhere. You can't run a central bank or a banking system unless you have liquidity. And you can't have liquidity unless you have capitalization. Now, the Biden administration has agreed that half of the $7 billion that's frozen in the US will be released. This isn't humanitarian aid money. It's money to underpin the banking system. What they haven't done yet is figure out how to release that money in an ordered way. And I just want to provide some additional context. You're, per, you're referring to uh, the $7 billion the Biden administration froze um, in assets last August, and it blocked the Taliban from ex- accessing that cash. In February, the Biden administration diverted billions of those assets from the Afghan Central Bank to humanitarian aid and to American families affected by 9-11. If I may just pick you up on one thing, you said it was about the Taliban accessing $7 billion. It's actually about allowing the country over which they now preside to be able to run its own affairs in a way or run its own economy in a way that is functional. Is it is it possible to keep those separate, though, David? I think that's that's as I'm listening, I want to better understand how those things can operate separate from one another. Yeah, that's a good question. And there is tension because of all of the misery that came out of Afghanistan on on 9-11. And I think it's a real point. But when you have teachers or nurses working for the Ministry of Education or the Ministry of Public Health, those are ordinary people. The fact that there's a Taliban person who is the government minister shouldn't blight the lives either of the nurses or teachers or of the students who are working for them. And that's been the situation at the moment, where if you're a Ministry of Health nurse, you've not been allowed to be paid since last August because of the person who's at the head of your ministry. And there's a final point that I think is really important. We shouldn't kid ourselves that if the current policies remain in place, if there isn't a release of the economic stranglehold, that it'll either be the Taliban who suffer or the Taliban who get the blame. Without change in policy, it will be the Afghan people who suffer, and it will be the West that gets the blame. And that doesn't achieve anything. That's David Miliband, former UK Foreign Secretary and the current CEO of the International Rescue Committee. David, it's always great to have you on. Thanks. Thank you so much, Jen. Joining me now is Christina Goldbaum, Afghanistan's correspondent with the New York Times. Christina, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Christina, United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, Philip O'Grandi, was just in Afghanistan. He recently spoke in an interview with the Associated Press about the very grave crisis in the country. Give us a sense of what things look like on the ground right now. 
Well, what we've seen playing out over the last couple of months is just a massive humanitarian crisis unfolding across the entire country. You know, you have more than half of the population, so that's almost 23 million people who are not consuming enough food. Um, acute malnutrition, so, you know, this is life-threatening malnutrition, is um, widespread in 25 of the country's 34 provinces. And what this means is that, you know, over the last couple of months, you've had a lot of families that have had to make heartbreaking decisions around how they spend the little money that they have, if they're still able to earn money as daily laborers or as farmers. Um, they're buying less and less food. You have mothers and children, especially, who are now severely malnourished, um, who have flooded into hospitals, usually at kind of the last stages of malnutrition, when it is very difficult to um, kind of inject life back into very, very young kids. You've also had you know, tens of thousands of others um, who just don't see any prospects in the country right now who have tried to leave into Iran and, and neighboring Pakistan as well, because they're looking at, you know, a future where the, econ the economy has, you know, almost completely collapsed. Um, there are very few jobs. Um, you know, women who are in their, you know, early 20s, early 30s, who grew up in cities under kind of much different circumstances where they saw futures in medicine and in education, who are deciding to leave because they, again, just don't see any prospects for themselves in the country right now. Um, and this is happening again across the country from rural areas to major cities as well. Yeah, as we said, it's been more than six months since the U.S. withdrew its troops and the Taliban took over. How has it affected the daily lives of Afghans, especially women? You know, for women, it's a difficult question to answer because, you know, the life of a 20-year-old in Kabul um, is going to be very different from, you know, a 20-year-old woman in Helmand province in a rural area. I think for women who are in urban areas or in major cities, um, they're facing and grappling with just, you know, a lot of hopelessness. Um, and vastly different futures. I mean, you've seen women activists um, detained for weeks. Um, you've seen the Taliban cracking down on women protesting in Kabul, especially in you know, January and February. Other women activists have, um, you know, and experienced other ways of intimidation, you know, been held, you know, overnight, been forced to sign documents that say they will not protest again. And then for regular women too, I think, again, especially in, the, in cities, a lot of young girls, a lot of teenagers, um, even if they are able to return to schools, because schools are supposed to reopen this week, and the Taliban have said that both boys and girls will be able to return to school, you still have those girls understanding that even if they manage to graduate high school, they will not be able to hold, you know, many of the jobs they had hoped to before. Um, you have families that are making decisions financially around if they send their, you know, sons or daughters to schools. And, you know, if you don't think your daughter will be able to get work, they're going to send their sons. And others who, because their parents both now have to go out every day and either beg for money or look for work, um, are having daughters stay home to take care of the younger kids. So again, in, in urban areas, at least, um, where, you know, life has drastically changed for young women. Again, I think you're seeing a lot of hopelessness um, and people just grappling with what do we do? Do we try to stay or do we try to leave? And, and Christina, how is the war in Ukraine being felt in Afghanistan? I mean, already, well, two things. I think already you're seeing... Um, you know, prices for food and other basics going up. You know, you know, wheat prices have gone up. We talked to importers who are saying that, you know, fuel prices are up maybe around 40% by some estimates right now. Um, and so, you know, that is, it's hitting the country at a time 
when already, again, the economy, you know, had completely tanked. Um, many people, you know, were not eating enough and barely had the income to buy those basic goods that the prices had already been rising since September. And so now I think a lot of people are worried about, you know, the kind of disruption in, you know, the global supply chain, you know, you have sanctions on Russian companies, kind of shifting global interest to Ukraine, you know, from Afghanistan, really compounding the, the hunger crisis that we've seen playing out over the last couple of years. Um, and so I think a lot of folks now are just worried about those prices continuing to rise. And aid organizations are also worried because they might need, you know, several million more dollars in order to, you know, provide the basic goods that they have been to regular folks. And, you know, already, you know, WFP is facing, a, I think, 1.6 billion dollar shortfall already. And so now they're going to have to ask for even more money of donors that are also you know, providing millions to um, support refugees pouring out of Ukraine as well. Is there an important piece of context that you think gets left out or overlooked in this discussion about what's ahead for Afghanistan? Um, I think what we're seeing right now is this kind of slow signs over the last couple of months emerging of a Taliban that's you know very different from their first role in the 1990s, but that still has this kind of more more subtle, more sophisticated means of, of cracking down on people who are um, you know either in opposition to them or other dissenters or activists who are protesting their rule. So for example, you know, women are allowed to go to secondary schools, but the conditions they've placed on you know segregating schools by gender might effectively bar some girls from getting a good education. Same thing for you know girls not being able to get jobs after they graduate. Um, you know, we've already seen some women activists again detained, um, others intimidated, these door-to-door searches that are looking for arms, but also effectively intimidating, you know, the population. All of that has kind of created this atmosphere, at least in urban areas that are historically resistant to their rule, um, of self-policing. And so it's not, I think we can't always look at, you know, the, the policies and um, you know, regulations the Taliban is putting into place, but more so, you know, what the atmosphere is that they're creating in the country and how that affects people's, people's daily lives there. That was Christina Goldbaum. She's a correspondent in Kabul, Afghanistan for the New York Times. Coming up after the break, we'll hear from Afghan refugees on how they're watching the crisis in Ukraine. And remember, to join future conversations, download our 1A Vox Pop app and leave us a voicemail. Support for NPR and the following message come from BetterHelp, offering online counseling. BetterHelp therapist Hesu Joe knows that lockdown has been hard on us as humans. We as people are hardwired to connect with others, which is why this whole time is so difficult. The connection that happens between people can be very powerful and how healing it can be to have a healthy relationship with someone. To get matched with a counselor within 48 hours and save 10%, go to BetterHelp.com slash 1A. Over this last year and a half, the world's been through a lot. So on this season of the StoryCorps podcast, we'll hear stories reminding us that even when times are hard, we can still begin again. Listen to our new season wherever you get your podcasts. We're talking about the latest out of Afghanistan since the Taliban took over the country more than six months ago. Here's Faisal Wazir, a 22-year-old refugee who left Afghanistan in August. You can't tell the pain. The, the pain inside, I can feel it. The same refugee the, the people of Ukraine, they can feel it. They're fleeing their home. I had a big house, three cars, a lot of money in my bank account. I had an awesome life in Afghanistan. And now I came to U.S. I literally am struggling with money. I think me and the refugees like from Ukraine and the people of Ukraine, I think 
this is the most worst pain you would ever have and that leaving your country and le- leaving everything behind, leaving your family members. The Biden administration recently granted temporary protected status, also known as TPS, to more than 76,000 Afghan refugees in the U.S. This protects people who fled the country when the Taliban took over in August from deportation and allows them to obtain work permits. Our producer, Sophia Alvarez-Boyd, spoke with Hassan Kurbani, a refugee in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, about his reaction to the news. Yeah, actually, it was a great news for us because uh, uh, some of Afghanis, refugees that came to the United States, they are worried about the government will sending back or not. They can stay here or not because Afghanistan's situation right now is not good. It's not safe. So it's really good news. Joseph Azam has been at the forefront of pushing for this protection. He's the board chairman of the Afghan American Foundation, a nonpartisan advocacy group, and a refugee himself. And he joins me now. Welcome to the program, Joseph. Thanks, Jen. Thanks for having us. Now, you came to the U.S. from Afghanistan after the end of the Soviet invasion in the 80s. The USSR spent a decade in the country. What are you feeling as you watch the ongoing refugee crisis in Afghanistan and the more recent one in Ukraine? I, I mean, it's it's reliving a nightmare, right, for many of us. Um, Afghanistan has been in a state of war for 40 years, right? There have been at least four waves of migration um, outside into the U.S. And so for a lot of us, the story that we're, of displacement that we're seeing um, in our homeland in Afghanistan, but also in Ukraine, is one that we've all lived. So, um, you know, it's, it's a hard thing to see repeating, right, because most of us are forever displaced, Right. And so um, we feel a lot of empathy for the folks who are going through what we went through. What have you been hearing from other Afghan refugees about the TPS order? I mean, by and large, there's a a tremendous sense of relief. Right. I mean, I think um, there is a lot of back and forth about, you know, how how valuable it could be right now. But this is the first piece of good news that a lot of Afghans, particularly those who've been evacuated, have gotten in seven months. And so um, it doesn't, um, you know, it doesn't do anything long-term, you know, and, and for that, there needs to be a long-term solution like an Afghan Adjustment Act that needs to be passed for permanent security. But in the near term, um, what we're hearing is a tremendous sense of relief. As you allude to, this is not a permanent move, and there are some conditions attached. Lay out how TPS works. I mean, essentially what it does is it um, looks at country conditions, right, in places where there's natural disaster or war, and it says that for humanitarian reasons, the U.S. is not going to deport people back to that country if they fall out of status here, right? So effectively, it creates um, a stopgap or a backstop, rather, for folks who are here um, under whatever status um, and and have a concern about being sent back. And in that time, um, folks who are able to take advantage of it, you know, can work and travel um, and be here effectively legally, right? Uh, and, And that's what it sort of does. It provides that peace of mind and that comfort. The other thing it does, and this is important for Afghans in the U.S., is you know, it kind of provides a, a safety net, right, for folks who are now going to have to navigate our arcane immigration system. Um, you know, if we don't pass an adjustment act, right, if, if a year goes by or 18 months goes by and folks either fall out of status or have trouble navigating and, and get out of status, this provides an extra measure of protection for them so they're not sent back to a war zone or to, you know, effectively a, a dire humanitarian um, catastrophe. Let's listen to a little more from Hassan Kurbani about what this news means for him and his family. I made a plan for myself. I thought in 18 months, it's, lo- it's a long time for me 
to improve myself, to get a job, to get a better job, to make a credit for myself here, and to get it and to to be get a green card. You know, if I can get green card, I can apply for my wife. You know, it's it's very tough situation for us here to to be alone. My wife is is in another country. I'm here. It's not a, it's, it's a long process. It's not about me, you know. It's about every Afghanis, those who, who their families left behind. He brings up an important point, Joseph, in that we're, we're not talking about individuals who are often just on their own. They're, they're part of familial structures. They're part of these larger ecosystems. How does that make the refugee experience more complicated and difficult? I mean, it... it, it it makes it tremendously painful, is what I would say. I mean, we have had instances of folks who have been evacuated who have left infants. We have had instances of infants who have been evacuated without their parents, right? And that's to say nothing of people who are, who are adults, right, and have left brothers and sisters and um, spouses, right? There. So I think the, the thing it really does is it, it makes this sort of a, a long-term challenge um, because family reunification, right, um, Ethically, morally, psychologically is one of the most important things that we need to deal with in this country with this population. And until we do, it leaves the wound unhealed. There are about 76,000 Afghan refugees in the U.S. who have been resettling here since last August. But Secretary of Homeland Security Alejandro Mayorkas granted the same status to Ukrainian refugees in in a matter of days. What was your reaction to how quickly that security was given out? It's a great thing to point out, Jen. I mean, for Ukrainians, um, it took less than seven days. And for Afghans, it took more than seven months. And, and, you know, our foundation was one of the first to actually um, ask for TPS for Afghans, but also for Ukrainians when the crisis broke out. Uh, And so we were really happy and we thought it was the right decision for the president to make to grant it to Ukrainians. Um, But we were disappointed in how long it took for it to happen for Afghans, right? And the reasons for that are many, probably, but um, the one that we hear discussed most often is because we're viewed differently. And, and that's something that we need to reckon with uh, as a country. Uh, and I think that the Biden administration needs to reckon with as an administration, right? And explain, right? Why was there this difference when the catastrophe that's unfolding in Afghanistan is no less than what's happening in Ukraine? And the people who are coming here or here already are no less deserving of protection. I want to turn to a tweet uh, you sent out last week. It says, quote, there will be noise today around hashtag Afghan TPS. Here's something different, a message I just received. A family of 11 just called me and cried about TPS. They had arrived before August 15th and were in limbo. It's heartbreaking to hear a grown man cry and say thank you. That's why. Give us some context. What was that tweet about? You know, it was about a lot of the discussion we've had as a foundation uh, with a lot of our allies, right? And we've had tremendous allies in the advocacy community and immigration practitioner community. Um, But there's been a lot of discussion of whether or not TPS was the right call, right? Whether or not it would um, cause members of Congress to, you know, sit back on their laurels and not address the permanent issue through an adjustment act. And our our position has been that if we can prevent a, a deportation for one person, if we can save one family from the tremendous pain of separation, that's enough. And so the tweet really was about getting us to focus on the fact that these are real people, right? These are real lives. And whether it's helping 20,000 or 2,000 or 20, it's the right thing to do and it makes a difference. And in some ways, it was a pushback against the cynicism that we're seeing, right? Like, why is it that Afghans who were 
you know, chasing a C-17 down a runway in Kabul have to get here and then outrun the cynicism of Washington, D.C., right? We're better than that. And so, you know, our hope is that folks, folks you know, focus on the right thing to do uh, and don't make, you know, this about politics or, you know, an election year. Joseph, what's been the response and what, has there been much support from Congress so far to move in that direction? You know, um, our understanding is that there are Republican and Democrat members of Congress who understand the importance of this act and who are behind it. Um, the challenge we face, of course, is that we're in an election, in an election year, right? And so um, we have to find a way to get those folks to stay focused on this uh, and pass uh, a standalone bill and get it to President Biden's desk to sign. Um, so, you know, the prospects, I think, you know, are good in that there is bipartisan support for it. But what might be lacking at this point, Jen, is urgency. And that's partly because of Ukraine. It's partly because of the fact that we're in the middle of a pandemic. And it's partly because people are exhausted, right, uh, around this issue. And we need to change that. Lay out for us specifically the support refugees need when they arrive in this country. Because it's not, it's not just about housing. It's not just about having food to eat. I'm imagining coming from a place that was torn by conflict and and the trauma you arrive here with. Absolutely. You know, and, and I want to make sure that we don't gloss over the housing issue, right? Because I think housing and employment are going to be the two most critical things in the next 6, 12, 18 months. But beyond that, right, there's a certain amount of care, right, and attention that these folks need in the communities that they're in because of the trauma you're talking about, Jen, right? Because of the fact that um, they're not only rebuilding their lives, but they're rebuilding themselves, right? And so I think... The faith-based groups we're seeing here in the U.S. are doing a good job of tending to that. Um, we're seeing ordinary Americans across the country in every state step up, right, deliver meals, help people register their kids for school, help them get to doctor's appointments, give them rides, right? All of those things on the micro level make a big difference. But to be honest, Jen, the thing that's most important is for these folks to have peace of mind. And so I think if every American kind of got behind an Adjustment Act or some path to permanent peace of mind and security, that would be the greatest service they could do to the almost 80,000, soon to be over 100,000 Afghans who are coming here. Joseph, I have to ask, as you're trying to support refugees here in the U.S. and you're watching the humanitarian crisis play out in your home country, how are you holding up? Um, you know, I'm holding up fine. And I think a lot of us who are doing this work are holding it fine because at the end of the day, you know, we're not dealing with a situation where 13,000 of our kids, newborns, are dying of malnutrition, right? Or 3.5 million of our, our siblings need nutritional support. Um, and so um, I'm holding up fine. You know, to us, and then when I say us, I mean Afghan-Americans in particular, this is the challenge of a lifetime. And so however we're feeling about it, you know, however disappointed or dejected or tired we may be, uh, it is nothing compared to what people are going through in Afghanistan. And, and so that purpose is crystal clear for most of us. And I think that um, we're motivated to keep going. And, and the hope that Afghans have, Jen, is what actually inspires us, right? I mean, you see the reports of all the dire circumstances, but Afghans are forever a hopeful people. And so, you know, if they're able to be hopeful in that situation of food insecurity and violence um, and uncertainty, then, then certainly those of us who've been fortunate enough to be in the U.S. 
can find reason for hope. And briefly, Joseph, as we wrap up here, what do you hope doesn't get lost as we continue to keep our eyes on Ukraine and on Afghanistan? I hope what doesn't get lost is that there's a moral obligation here for the U.S. and, and for the rest of the world, right? I mean, Afghanistan, I am a product of the war in Afghanistan, right? There are half a million of us in the U.S. and 38 million of us in Afghanistan, and we're people, right? And so I think that the, the solution to all this is to find some humanity and recognize that there's a moral obligation here to act and an opportunity, right? I mean, the world knows um, the depth of the crisis in Afghanistan, right? It's right before our eyes. So uh, I hope that people don't look away. That's Joseph Azam. He's the board chairman of the Afghan American Foundation. Joseph, thank you for speaking with us. Thank you so much, Jen. We also heard from Faisal Wazir and Hassan Kurbani, who are Afghan refugees in the U.S. Today's producer was Sophia Alvarez-Boyd. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk more soon. This is 1A.